Okay. So I feel like I'll function like a host. Right? Okay. Like, oh, I'll, I'll invite... Okay, there we go. Hello, everyone. Um, how do I even start the Kevin? How do I even start? <laughs> this is crazy. This is the craziest thing. Anyways. Okay. Um, here we go. Wait, hold on. There's coffee coming. Hold on two seconds. Okay, okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our very first Dialogues uh, episode uh, from St. Matthew's, the Anglican Church in the Glebe. We're in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Uh, my name is uh, the Reverend Jeffrey Chapman, and I'm joined by Reverend uh, Kevin Flynn. Are you, are you like a canon? No. no, I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm unadorned <laughs> with titles. <laughs> okay, and um, we are, uh, we we are here to, in this COVID nineteen time to offer you uh, a series of podcast episodes about one of our favorite theologians, uh, Richard Hooker. Um, hopefully, we're going to go through uh, a really wonderful new uh, edition of Richard Hooker. We're starting with the preface and ideally going to work our way through. Um, Kevin, why are we, why are we doing this? Why, why, why are we so excited about Richard Hooker? Well, I guess the reason for me is that he's been one of those people about whom I've known for years and years and years. Somebody that I've always thought, well, I really ought to know more about him than I do because he's kind of the, supposed to be the, uh, understood as a kind of the classic instance of, of an expression of of why the Church of England, uh, why the particular polity and tradition um, out of which uh, we continue to live. And yet, to be honest, I've never been able to penetrate his uh, apparently um, exemplary Elizabethan prose, because it's, uh, (laughs) although I'm at home with the language of the prayer book, and I'm uh, reasonably at ease with Shakespeare, uh, or Marlowe, or people of that ilk, I've just yeah. found him impenetrable. Now, I've never had anybody um, take me through it, through him, but, um, well, you you were the one who um, opened my eyes to this new translation of him that's been out for a few years, and uh, I'm so glad to have discovered that, in fact, he really does have something to say. Yeah, it's it's the most exciting thing. I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, Shakespeare, I mean, what's hilarious is how, if we find Shakespeare difficult to read and understand, he was writing his works for the masses and Richard Hooker is writing a dense academic yes. treatise to other theologians and clergy. So that's <laughs> in Shakespearean style English. It's just, uh, yeah, <laughs> but, but, um, but what we found, um, is this new, it's a kind of translation in a way. And it's, it's by these, uh, scholars in, in the United States and they have uh, set about taking uh, the prose of Richard Hooker and basically going almost line by line. I think there's four, three different editors. They describe it in the preface to the to the preface, uh, and they're going through um, and 
basically translating Richard Hooker to the same kind of English that, to be honest, and they, they mentioned this in the preface, the same kind of English that we would encounter with a modern translation of Martin Luther, a modern translation of John Calvin. And one of the things that they remark, and it makes a lot of sense, is as English uh, clergy, we have read more John Calvin and more Mar uh, yes. Martin Luther than our own English uh, theologians, because why would we translate English to English? And the further along we move away from the uh, 1600s, 1500s, the more and more impenetrable uh, Hooker's text is becoming. So I don't know. So that's the first reason I think is because I, I agree with you. I think both of us, I was also told in seminary, you know, he's the most important theologian to the Anglican tradition and, you know, really the architect of modern Anglicanism. And yet I, I barely read him as well. I had some sense of a three-legged stool that I wrote in some exam and attributed that three-legged stool of scripture, tradition, and reason to Hooker, right? Right. Although I, I, I gather he never actually uses that particular metaphor. No. But in any case, that, this is one of the perils, right? Always a good thing to go to the actual, the actual writer. So that's yeah. what we're so, doing. So that's the first thing. But there's another reason, right? And that's that in addition to this sort of fun curiosity of encountering a theologian we've always wanted to read, it's incredibly good. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, surprise, surprise. <laughs> it's, 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 it's phenomenally written, it's um, elegant, it, it, it's fresh, it feels really fresh. And it's and very witty from time to time. He's got yes. some wonderful, uh, rather elegantly phrased little jabs that he, he doesn't mind uh, putting in against some of his opponents or a kind of ironic wit. Um, no, it's, uh, it repays uh, reading for sure, just to find some of those bon mots. Well, and, and he's also writing in a time of, of deeply heated passion mm. um, among within the church. Everybody is very, very polarized. I mean, I think things were, even though we really feel like our time today is, is incredibly polarized, I really think that his era was even more polarized. I know, he, I mean, he right at the outset, he says, I know I have little reason, beloved, to expect from you anything but your usual harshness and bitterness toward all who disagree <laughs> with you. Well, have we ever encountered that in, in the life of the church? Um, but, it, yeah. it, you know, but uh, we might today think, you know, I mean, th for them, these are life and death matters, which, you know, on first reading, they're like, why are people getting so exercised about various forms of church government? Uh, you know, in our context, yes. we might say, well, we need it, but I'm hardly going to go, go to the stake for this or that other or other form of it. But for them, uh, this is really urgent stuff. And uh, yet he can go on to say, this bitterness will never drown the love which we have for all who claim the name of Christ. So he's really got an effort, he's making an effort throughout to be ironical, um, to expect that uh, his opponents will take him at his best, even as he takes them at their best. Ne although, nevertheless, he, he finds their argument uh, problematic, to say the least. Yeah. Well, and, and, and what I love about how he weighs in is he doesn't, he doesn't really pick a side, right? I mean, he's, his side is reason, yes, right? His side yes. is, is, is saying, you know, he's seeing all of these passions aflame and he's seeing two sides that aren't really listening to each other and they're not 
making a ton of sense. There's a, I'm going to use one, one quote here. He says, um, I, I just love this. Everybody tends to fall in love <laughs> with his own ideas. I mean, right away, like yes. everybody tends to, everybody falls in love with their own ideas. And when others contradict them, this only fans our love into a flame and makes us all the more eager to contend, argue, and do everything we can on their behalf. Yes. It's like, yeah. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps when I read that because I'm just like, that's it, you know? And, uh, and I mean, and of course, and what, what happened, I think, to both you and me is it was something so familiar about seeing what the articulation of, of uh, a deep, uh, deeply Anglican argument, right? Leaning on reason. Um, he'll go on to say later in, in, in uh, I, I forget where it is, if it's, if it's in the preface or in book one, that uh, the purpose of Christianity is, is, is uh, to bring happiness to our lives. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Um, okay, any other? Th- okay, so I want to I wanna just describe the structure before we move on. Here's what yeah, we're sure. planning on doing with, with all of you. Um, so we, we, would, we would be happy if you just followed along with the podcast as we, as we led you through uh, the, the book that we're actually dealing with. It's one ginormous book called The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. Um, I don't know if that needs explanation. It's Kevin. How would you describe what that title? The laws of ecclesiastical polity. Uh, that, well, that's just, ecclesiastical polity is how our churches governed and structured. Um, yeah. And we should probably note that the that this translation we're using um, for the pre- the preface is called radicalism when reform becomes yeah. revolution. Um, yeah. And it's been edited and translated by W. Bradford Littlejohn. Brian Marr and Bradley Belchner. Um, and uh, so that's come out in, in book, uh, so book one has been published as well. So I'm waiting eagerly for the rest of the laws because there are five um, books, as Hooker called them, and then there are several that um, were kind of posthumously published. They weren't quite finished. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was book six to ten. Yeah. Yeah, I actually have you know the originals sitting on my shelf. Big, oh, they are too. big fat tomes. <laughs> you can't be an Anglican priest without that's the right. laws of ecclesiastical polity. Even shelf. if you haven't read them, yeah, that's it's the <laughs> that's osmosis right. theory of theological study. You know, if it, the book is yeah. there, it somehow seeps into my consciousness. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So so that's so what I think we're going to do today is we're going to start with, we, we want to sort of do it in a in digestible bits. So ideally, you could potentially uh, get these books. I think I have a Kindle version of it. The, they're quite reasonably priced. I do too, yes. Because you can highlight it and flip around. Um, and we're going we're gonna to start, and we're going to go through uh, in, in by just a few chapters each week. Um, and ideally, you could, if you wished, you could follow along with us, and you could use this podcast as a commentary, or you could simply just enjoy the conversation. So for this, for this week... We're going to uh, briefly reflect on. They have a preface that they wrote to his preface. The preface that he wrote is actually gigantic. It's the whole first book mm-hmm. is just his preface to the laws of ecclesiastical polity, where he uh, spells out a bunch of uh, content. So we're gonna we're gonna look at their preface briefly, and then the first two, their chapters. But are they called chapters? I don't know what they're called, but they're uh, chapters. Chapters, effectively. yeah, effectively. Yeah. 
So we're going to do the first two chapters. Okay. Right, and we should so, note that, um, yeah. you know, his, the people that he's speaking to are what we might call them Presbyterians or Puritans. They're still members of the Church of England, but they're... Yes. Um, this is now during the reign of Elizabeth I, and uh, kind of dealing with the Roman Catholics has already taken place. The reign of Mary uh, Tudor ended. Elizabeth's on the throne. The, the Protestant project seems to be safe, except for this group of people who want to take the reform further and right. look to Calvin's Geneva as the model for the way things should be organized in England. So Hooker's right. purpose is to say, you know, what we've got works, and this is why. Not just works, but is conformable to, to Scripture and to reason. Right, and just to dial things back even further, like the, the, the context, I mean, you're, they're living in an era where it's an enormously exciting time for the Church. On, in continental mm -hmm. Europe, there are places all over Europe that are experimenting with new kinds of societies. Uh, monarchies are toppling and taking their place are these radical reformers who are trying to build a new world, a new society around their ideas of what, what scripture would want us to build. And it's, it's really interesting for me because there are modern versions of this that, uh, that are quite frightening. Like technically, you know, ISIS is hmm. sort of, they claim to be trying to rebuild an empire based on entirely on uh, the Quran alone. Yes. Um, but but the reality is, I don't think, um, and and obviously we know from church history that there were some very sinister things and sinister folks in this time period doing some very scary things. But also the academy uh, and universities were really enamored by this movement too. It was also a very progressive movement, and there were a lot of very progressive idealistic people that really wanted to see, for example, the Queen of England and the monarchy topple in the name of some very righteous, noble things. And so it's, I don't, it's interesting to think about, you know, it's, I don't know what, what level this movement was a, a deeply conservative movement and to what extent this was a very progressive movement that he's arguing against. Well, I, I think it's partly, a, it's of a piece of much of the Reformation as found within the Renaissance more generally, that this, this kind of return to sources, you know, not just classical sources, but to go back to uh, sc scriptural texts, a, a refreshed interest in original languages, uh, an attempt to um, kind of peel back some of the accretions of history and get to some pure, cleaner form of what the Christian enterprise is about. So, um, you know, the reference to ISIS is perhaps not, may, may sound extreme, but in some respects, you know, this desire to have a version of a theocracy uh, seems a, a perennial human temptation, and uh, probably some of his more extreme opponents uh, gave into that temptation themselves. Yeah. Okay, so that's, so those are, that's sort of the context, that's who he's arguing Two. Um, okay, so then as, as the preface starts, they really, you know, they're, they're trying to, the authors of the preface, they are making an argument that I find rather convincing that his, that his arguments are relevant, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that we should care about what he's 
saying there's a there's a line that I highlighted that I thought was so fun because I kind of wish this would happen to me in real life, where they talk as they're describing his early life, they uh, he he began he was he was taught at Oxford, um, some of the greatest theological minds in England. Some of them have Puritan leanings, some of them do not. He becomes this. Uh, his, his, he begins his career as what's described as the master of the Temple Church in London. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm that's sure a that's I a major think. appointment. The major appointment because so there, because that's that's yeah. kind of the law the the uh, the church for lawyers and so forth. Oh really? Yeah, that's cool. Anyway, so that so then they go on to describe how he he begins uh, his ministry and he'll preach his he preaches a sermon every morning. And then every <laughs> afternoon, his Puritan associate, a fellow named Walter Travers, would use his afternoon preaching slot to attack everything Richard Hooker was preaching in the morning. And I just thought, man, wouldn't it be exciting at St. Matthew's if I <laughs> preach a morning sermon and then Kevin Flynn comes yes. in at two o'clock in the afternoon and tears everything I preached down. That's I'm right. Like, that's, that's, nevertheless, here is the faith, <laughs> despite what you heard this morning. Yeah, well, that, well that's effectively what was going on. Um, yeah. And uh, the, the authors of the preface to their work say that, you know, um, there, a lot of this kind of stuff, they're talking past one another. We're, we're more and more familiar yes. these days with people living in their little uh, sort of media bubbles or where, you know, the argument of the other side never even comes close. Um, so they point out that Hooker's enterprise is to, okay, let's get, let's take a step back from particular arguments and go to first principles. So if you're going to argue about church government, you need to say, you know, what is law, what's political authority, what's biblical authority, what's church authority, because if if you were going to go just by the, well, anybody who purports that you can just go by the plain sense of scripture will soon discover that there is no plain sense because they've got all these different interpretations. So we've got to go back to first principles to to determine what we're talking about at all. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I, I mean, and it's funny. It's it's it is, it is a a conundrum that we're still dealing with in, in this age, right? Is oh. you know, there are there are millions of of well-meaning people. I think that um, are arguing passionately for something that millions more think is is the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard. There's a the authors describe. They say. What was it that led righteous and well-meaning Christians to become convinced that there was no other path to truth but theirs, yes. no true church but theirs, and that any who opposed them were godless and corrupt? Yep. Well, right. it's not as if uh, we've never known sectarian squabbles ourselves. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, it does sometimes seem like you know, people are shouting right past one another. So it, it gives, a, I think, further reason for us to look to his... I mean, he has a point of view. There's no doubt about that. But um, he's trying as far as possible to lay out these first principles in a clear and dispassionate way so that everybody can come back again to some kind of common ground from which to work Okay, let's go on. Let's go on to mm-hmm. the first chapter here. Um, I, I think it's very... Um, 
I don't know if bittersweet is the word. It's it's he knows that he knows that his writings um, will not be for his own generation. Like the first thing he writes, right? Though for no other cause yet for this, that posterity mm. may know that we have not loosely through silence permitted things to pass away as in a dream. For this I write, offering to posterity an account of the present state and legal establishment of the Church of England and a vindication of those who have fought so hard to preserve and uphold it. Mm-hmm. Rather poignant. And and, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, and, and something else that I don't know if we mentioned, you know, where this is an era where the state of the church and the state, like the actual government, are, are very much linked. Yes. Um, if, right? If you want to preserve the current state of England, you want to preserve the monarchy. Absolutely. If you are, right? And if you're a, a devout Puritan, you want to see the monarchy um, disestablished. Yeah, that, well, that will certainly become more the case as you as we move into the 17th century with, um, you know, when the rather um, ill-favored reign of Charles I when, yeah. you know, the logical outcome of all of this is, in fact, regicide and the establishment of Parliament as the sole authority. Uh, we may not be quite there with everybody yet, but um, I, I, although uh, Hooker doesn't talk about it here... Um, one of the boasts of English reformers were that, you know, in having a godly prince, you know, they were in, uh, an especially favored people because they, they're drawing from Old Testament sources about, you know, the monarchs who are faithful to God, uh, bring blessing upon the land. And now here in this time of Reformation, uh, the English have known godly monarchs like Edward VI or Elizabeth I who were able to be not just good instruments of God in the sense of the uh, old covenant, but all the more so now because they're godly in the light of Christ. So, um, yeah, any kind of distinction between church and state that we might tend to draw is is basically alien to these folks. They're all of a piece. Mm. Mm. Okay, so let's keep going. So what are some of the so there's that sort of initial piece where he's sort of describing, he's really writing to, I, I suppose, maybe some Puritan colleagues and various, and in some ways to us, to people who have followed this this time and this place. Um, so he, yeah, so, so he goes, he says, let's go back to the very beginning, showing yes. where this Presbyterian discipline was first attempted in this, our present age. And he starts off with a very... Um, positive evaluation of of John Calvin, whom he describes yes, yes. as the wisest man the Church of France ever had since the first hour yeah. since the hour it first enjoyed him. Um, Though thousands learned from him, he learned from God alone, the author of that most blessed fountain, the Book of Life. Um, so uh, he knows he's dealing with a movement that has really strong roots and, uh, and, an, and an excellent uh, leader in the, in the person of Calvin. Um, and then uh, he, he points out that um, Calvin had to leave France and happened upon Geneva, which had recently been forsaken by its bishop and clergy, who had probably feared that the people would suddenly abolish Pope's religion and had not been too eager to wait around for it to happen. <laughs> so so that, so he's essentially saying they, they, they like basically fled for their lives. In, when they indeed. Felt like- 
Yeah. So st- Calvin steps into the breach. Um, and uh, Calvin being admitted as a preacher and divinity reader saw how dangerous it was that the whole estate of the church should hang on so slender a thread as an ignorant multitude with the power to do whatever it wanted to do. Um, so he sets, so Calvin sets in place, or begins to set in place, ha- an order of, um, of church and, and, uh, and government um, so that the people of Geneva are not just left to the ignorant multitude. Mm-hmm. Well, but then, and it's funny because he, he, and he's completely supportive of Calvin. Like he almost yes. seems to suggest if they had just kind of allowed the, 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 I don't know, because so he's, he's, he's not just establishing a church, right? He's, he's establishing a society yes. in Geneva. Yes. Right. So there is a bit, this is a straight theocracy. Yes. With Calvin at the head. And he's carefully building this new society and this new church in this place. And but his critique isn't Calvin; uh, it's it's the Genevans. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because he, he points out that you know um, they began to put these things into law, uh, but then um, it, it led to an even bigger problem. He says every new reformed church that came along aspired to remove itself even further from any hint of Church of Rome than the churches before. And so, um, you know, there's a kind of one-upmanship of how reformed can you be, and the result, he says, came to be much strife, jealousy, discord, and bad blood between them. Yeah. And that's been the case for the next 400 years. I had a church history history professor Mm -hmm. many years ago who said um, the only successful break from the Anglican uh, church was the Methodist church. And every other break, they tend to divide and then divide and then divide. It's, there's this gold idealistic standard that you're searching for, and that's what you left for this very particular reason. Yes. You're just trying to return to Scripture. And then once that break happens, there's a smaller group within that group that says, well, but we're not quite there yet. We need to right, go this way. Right. And then they break again, it's, and it just keeps... It's as if the goalposts keep getting advanced further and further along down the field. Yeah. 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 But uh, you know this, so becomes, this becomes a problem for Calvin and himself. They um, they actually get banished from Geneva precisely because they insist on um, keeping to the form of, of pure religion that they've established there, um, and uh, and and they're banished because they had uh, effectively excommunicated some of those people of the city who would not quietly submit to the very form of discipline which they so recently had sworn to obey. <laughs> That's another another wonderfully characteristic human kind of <laughs> reaction. It's All of this is great until we actually have to live with it. Right. But Calvin right. comes back. Yeah, they bring it. Well, and part of it he's describing, and it's interesting, they're very sensitive in this sort of revolutionary time to what everybody else is doing and yes. what everybody else is thinking. Yes. And he, he describes the Genevans being aware that they have banished arguably one of the most godly men in the world. Like, there's no way that people are going to side with Geneva. And so he almost suggests yes. it wasn't due to their, you know, righteousness or insight, but rather just the pressure of and, and embarrassment that they bring him back in. Yes, um, you know, but of course it, it, it still doesn't really work at no, at no point is, is, is Calvin really fully, um, able to establish what he wants to establish. Quite so. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's where that quote that I said, that's from this bit he's talking about Calvin. He says, but wise men are only human, and the truth is the truth. What John Calvin did was to establish this discipline seems better than what he thought about it after he it had been established. And then he goes on, everybody tends to fall in love with their own ideas. Yeah, so the, the, the other, uh, there's another rather nice observation by Hooker uh, in uh, section six. He says, sometimes the best way to win the day is to run away. <laughs> That is, <laughs> Calvin having left <laughs> made people realize, oh, you know, we were actually better to have him around. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and then I think he, uh, so he's, so where is he? Yeah, and it's funny, I mean, we're, we're actually rounding, a lot of his, his talk of Calvin, I think, is in chapter, is in chapter two. And then he sort of ends with sort of a yearning. There's a great, I, I love this little quote. He says, there will come a time when three words uttered with charity and mm. meekness shall receive a far more blessed reward mm-hmm. than 3,000 volumes written with disdainful sharpness of wit. Oh. <laughs> no matter how scornfully men write, we must not hide from the truth if it appear they have it. That he says, however, however. Yes. So he's an advocate of the truth. Indeed. And he also notes, there's another nice little piece uh, a little earlier in which he says, when guts battle wits, it is an unfair fight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To say that, again, you know, when people are in the thick of heated argument and the passions are running, you know, your tribal loyalties or your group think or whatever will win out over actual yeah. careful thought. Um, I don't know. It's, it's very, it's just, it feels, for me when I read this for the first time, it just felt, it felt, I, I agreed with him, but it also felt very familiar. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I mean, I think like many um, Anglicans, I, I, um, I was trained, sort of exposed to all these wonderful articulations of Christianity and in terms of theology, I tended to not read a lot of straight-ahead Anglican theologians. Um, and I often felt like my tradition was sort of somehow in between sort of classic Catholic articulations of theology and Protestant articulations of theology, and we were somehow sort of a merging of the two. Um, I don't know. It was just really... Yeah, feels really I mean, that, that's a, a matter for sort of ongoing debate. You know, is there an Anglican theology? Is there an Anglican theological yeah. method? Um, we couldn't say that everybody has followed the example of Hooker and <laughs> Anglicanism is, you know, it's, it's perhaps one of its boasts is that it, you know, it, it doesn't claim to be the church and that all the treasures of the great tradition are available to it. Um, but I think there is this kind of, at least uh, at our best, um, Hooker's judicious kind of spirit is still to be found where uh, I mean there's a kind of uh, an optimistic conservatism so to speak that is if it it's a kind of if it ain't broke don't fix it Um, that is there there may be fundamentals but other things have a value if you know they may not be first order things but if it's but if they have the weight of, uh, of history and tradition behind them these things are worth approving and maintaining. It's, it's, um, and then there's the, um, and then of course, you know, as you pointed out, the, 
the three-legged stool, he's uh, he, he makes he certainly grounds his appeal in scripture. I mean, that's that's absolutely the fundamental starting mm-hmm. point, and that I'd like to think is an as a an abiding Anglican commitment. Well, and that was his fundamental critique of the the community in Geneva, right? It was actually scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it was sort of all three in a sense. He said he said it doesn't it didn't seem to work because they were given the greatest leader that they could have been given. Yes. And they weren't able to make it work with him. Who else are they going to make it work with? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then he says on top of that, you know, show me in scripture, like all the, the, the rules of the society that they constructed. You know, it's, there's no direct correlation. At right, no point does right, Jesus right. spell out this kind of community. You know, and Paul absolutely talks about, you know, following... Um, you know, listening to those, you know, the, the society, right? There's a lot of pieces where Paul is not trying to create some kind of insurrection. He's not trying to lead a rebellion, you know? And and so he's he's saying, I'm not convinced, what, my reading of scripture doesn't convince me that this community in Geneva was bound by scripture and it didn't seem to work very well, you know? And yes. on top of all that, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just not holding up to the, to the rigors of uh, the interrogation that I'm, you know, putting upon them. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. A, he's know. kind of arguing that you know people need to have a certain modesty about the the uh, claims that they make, um, because again, on on the church government sort of thing, people are going beyond Calvin himself. So, in so far as he says, uh, this is in uh, section yeah. seven. He says, "Can you point me to a singular single argument in which Calvin That's shows it. that Scripture absolutely requires these things?" or any of the other policies of Calvinists that you want to embrace against the current order of your own church. So, you know, this may be good as far as it goes, but um, you're really presuming way too much uh, by saying that Scripture absolutely requires this. And that's going to, I think, you know, that's going to be an ongoing theme throughout all the laws of ecclesiastical polity that uh, uh, this I do actually remember from... (laughs) You know my little dips into book five uh, in his, in its original form. He's got this. Uh, he's saying you know the, the idea that you only can do what Scripture absolutely requires you is is nonsense. Uh, he so he imagines uh, you know if you had a had household servants who were scripturally um, wise, they might refuse your order to cook you dinner because it isn't expressly commanded by the Scriptures. You know so th- this this way is madness. Oh yeah. It's well. I mean, yeah. He, he his his sort of appeal to to reason. I think is is uh, that the he'll sort of expound throughout this is is deeply satisfying. Indeed. Okay. So, Kevin. Yes. Jeff. I think I think we have accomplished our our first episode. All right. Exploring the works of Richard Hooker. Well, I've uh, enjoyed the conversation. Me too. This is super fun. I'm super excited about this. So uh, um, make sure to, uh, um, I don't know, should I tell people to hit subscribe? That's what YouTubers say. I don't know. Make sure to, I, I, I hope you tune in for the next, uh, the next episode. We're going to be going through chapters three and four and kind of continue leaping through the preface. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and I hope uh, that those of you who listen will start to find him as interesting and engaging a reader, a, a writer as as we found him to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Great. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>